Uh, I wanted to make a quick announcement. I was just told that Connie had contacted uh, Chuck and Diane told them that uh, Jerry Tallman's unresponsive this morning and they've called in his children and so his, his departure for better places is, is upon us uh, today, maybe tomorrow, sometime in the very, very near future. So um, we want to keep them in our prayers, but also pray in gratitude that, you know, those that we know are going to glory. I mean, no, don't have any question whatsoever. It really needs to be a time of rejoicing as believers. And of course, grief and sorrow for those left behind. But isn't it glorious to say that Friends are friends forever if the Lord's the Lord of them. What a great thing. Okay, we are studying Christian evidences in this class. And we've been discussing how we got the Bible. There's, uh, we have, I think, five lessons on how we got the Bible. And our particular study the last couple weeks has been on kind of the process through which the Bible came to be. And today we're going to transition to some other details of both the scriptures and the manuscript evidence that have been left behind. So all of your English Bibles were translated from Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic language, manuscripts. And those manuscripts are copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. And so that's where some of the difficulty comes in. And what's funny is even with a photocopy machine that we have in present technology, if you were to take a copy and you were to copy a piece of paper, and then you copied the copy and copied the copy and copied the copy, rather than copying the original, copy of copy of copy of copy of copy. Even with a photocopy machine, guess what happens? There's, you get, it, the letters become fuzzy after time because you get a slight reduction in quality with every copy. Now, extrapolate that to handwritten copies that take a year each to do of somebody's full-time work. And that's where some of the issues come in. So we have to look historically at how it is that God providentially preserved that for us to be able to answer folks that ask us, well, how do you know your Bible's reliable? The languages of the Bible. The Bible is written in three languages. Psalm 119 is a good example of the Old Testament Hebrew alphabet because Psalm 119 is broken down. And each letter of the Hebrew alphabet kind of begins each section. So you can look that up on your own. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Hebrew is a very strange language in it that its vocabulary bears no relation to English. No relation to English. It is written not from left to right. It is written from right to left. It is written without any spaces between letters or words. So it's just... I, it's incredible how they do that. And it's written with no vowels. I mean, it is a, as foreign as Klingon is from English. If you don't know what Klingon is, that's because you're cooler than the rest of us. Okay. So um, it is very, very, very different than the English language. Uh, so the second is Aramaic. This language came from the tongue of the common man in Palestine at the return about 500 B.C., when they came back from Persian and Babylonian captivity. Several portions of the Old Testament are in Aramaic rather than Hebrew. Genesis 31, 47, Nehemiah 8, 8, Jeremiah 10, 11, Ezra 4, 4, verse 8 through 6, verse 18, 
and Ezra chapter 7, 12 through 26, and Daniel chapter 2, verse 4 through chapter 7, verse 26. All of that is in Aramaic. Uh, there are some in the New Testament, most notably when Jesus cries out, the Eloi, Eloi, the Masabachthani. Um, very little in the New Testament, though. Uh, an interesting verse concerning both Hebrew and Aramaic is in Daniel 2.4. We read that last week, so you can look that up if you want. But that verse begins in Hebrew, ends in Aramaic. Okay, finally, the last is Greek. And although the spoken language of Jesus was Aramaic, the universal language was Greek, it only makes sense that because of God's desire that the gospel be proclaimed to every creature, that it is a written language common to everyone. As we mentioned, and we won't go into great detail about this today, but that particular time in history was the perfect time for the Lord to come. There has never been another time, and there never was a time like that before, that, that's exactly that way. There was world peace among all the known entities of the world. Okay? Now, you might say, well, we have world peace. Now would be a good time too. No, we do not. No, we do not. In fact, you can't even preach the gospel in the three pla two places that have half the world's population. Do you know that? And you say, well, yes, you can. Okay, you can't in China, but you can in India. Well, my friend, he's the preacher in Humble, Texas, has been an Indian missionary for about the last 20 years, and he got his visa, when he applied for a, a visa to go to India uh, two years ago, it came back with a stamp in it that said, banned for life. That really irritates me, because most of my doctors are Indians, which I think is great. I mean, I'm, I'm all about opportunity for everybody, but it really irritates me that they're allowed to come here and do what they want, and they won't let us go there and preach the gospel. So you hear, but yeah, but people are preaching the God. Yeah, but they're not telling them why they're going. Because if you tell them on your application that you're going to be a missionary, banned for life. Banned for life. And then you think that's tough? Try going to China and doing it. In the Roman Empire, every corner of the known world. Yes, I know there was those in the Far East and there were those in the Americas. But every corner of the known world, the traveled world, the literate world, every corner of that world had roads, had peace, and had one language. Now, what better scenario could that be? The hardest thing about being a missionary is what? Learning the culture and the language. Not in the first century. Good old boy fisherman could travel to the farthest corners of the world. And they spoke the same language. Isn't that beautiful? Never been another time in human history like that. So it was the right time because of the Greek language. And then for us, that Greek language, once the Roman Empire fell, that language kind of ceased to be used. Today's Greek that you would hear them speak in Greece is not Koine Greek which meant common Greek, universal Greek, that was spoken by the ancients. And so that language being a dead language helped to preserve the Bible because dead languages don't evolve. All languages that are in use evolve. Has anybody seen the language, English language evolve in your lifetime? 
Now, when I was a kid, bad was good. I'm bad. That's the dumbest thing in the world, isn't it? That's dumb. Cool was hot, yeah. I mean, I mean, and we don't even have to get into some of the other. I mean, it's a, the definitions change. They evolve, but not in a dead language. They stay static. They stay the same forever. So perfect time. So those are the three languages. Now, today we transition <coughs> to a lesson in which we start talking about the, the ways that these manuscripts were translated. So in today's study, we discuss the New Testament manuscripts. This is very important study considering the fact that the original New Testament letters were pinned upon papyrus or vellum sheets, which were relatively fragile and would deteriorate after time. In fact, we don't have a lot of ancient, ancient papyrus sheets left. Vellum lasted longer. And, and so, but that didn't come into extensive usage till about the second century. So in the first century, most all the letters were penned on Egyptian papyrus paper. And that paper, of course, any paper is susceptible to moisture. It's susceptible to age and it becomes brittle and it breaks down. The ink will dissolve and, and will evaporate. So <clears throat> it's important that we look at these manuscripts that have been copied through the years. Therefore, it's necessary to make copies of the apostolic messages. These copies in Greek are known to us as manuscripts. When we consider a New Testament manuscript, it only stands to reason that one of the first questions we would ask would be, how old is it? This can be answered by looking at several factors, such as the size of the letters, space between the words, number of columns and their length, and marks of punctuation. And the point is, is that if you need to date something, or at least get an approximate date of something, if you read English, do you know you can, because English evolves, you can read English, a letter written in English, and kind of know when it was written, or at least the age of the person who wrote it? I've been writing more on my dissertation pretty heavily the last couple months, and I turn, I, I've hired an editor, professional editor, which has saved me a lot because my daughter, she did all of it for me, and then somehow she doesn't have time to do it anymore. Isn't that funny? Um, I, school is a little demanding, so she can't do that. So I've hired an editor, and she sent it back. My, my recent chapter was about 27 pages, something like that, with a bunch of footnotes, and she sent it back, and she had 881 edits. You know what half of them were? I put two spaces after every period before I start a new sentence. Who else does that? No, you're not. Not anymore. Not since eight years ago. No, really. Yeah, they changed it. I mean, you will get a lower grade now if you write with two... Sp because, do you know why that rule was instituted? Typewriters. Think about it. Computers don't need that, do they? I mean, but the two spots, sometimes you got to white out. Sometimes you... You see what I mean? So... We, they did it because sometimes, and sometimes typewriters would double strike. Anybody ever had that before? So that double strike would start your word, and it would skip it, right? And so what they do is they made up a rule that you're supposed to write. In our day, I always, I mean, and I just do it instinctively. Space bar, space bar. Space bar, space bar. 
880 edits. Because she fixed every single one of those. She doesn't get paid per edit. She gets paid per hour. But I still think it probably would have cost less if she didn't have to do that. It's just one space. It's just one space. Now, what's my point by this, okay? If you read my writing and most of your writings, 10,000 years from now, you're going to know these people were raised pre-what? Computer. That would date us, correct? Yeah, that is true in human writing across the board. If you read, I, I've been studying a lot, reading a lot of the Millennial Harbinger and the Christian Baptist, which were Alexander Campbell's two publications in his life. And I read what he writes, and I couldn't write that way if I wanted to. He uses verbiage that I have to look up. And, and I mean, I've been in academic programs. I hear a lot of crazy verbiage. But I don't know what those, I would never form a sentence in that way. Ever. It sounds quite lovely, but it's, it's heavy. You know, it's just not the most efficient way to form a sentence. But, I mean, yeah. I mean, how long should a sentence be? Is it right to write a one-page sentence? Well, one of the most celebrated authors in history is William Faulkner. Has anybody ever read any William Faulkner? The Sound and the Fury has three-page sentences. And William Faulkner won a Nobel Prize in how many Pulitzers? Does anybody know? Three or four Pulitzer Prizes. He is one of the most celebrated authors in the English language. And he writes, because the thing about English is it kind of depends on, you know, I, I, I went, the program I went through in my doctoral program, they sent a lot of professors from Harding through there, and it was interdisciplinary, so you could focus your, so we, I had uh, two English professors from Harding in my PhD classes. And what was hilarious about it is they're both English professors and they both had totally opposite opinions on what was correct. One of them really liked short, concise sentences. You know, lots of periods. You know, The other one, I mean, he would write these extensive and they're both English professors. I'm like, this is confusing for an old country boy like me. Which one's right? And they said, well, well, she said, mine's right. And he said, mine's right. Well, I guess we both are sort of right, but I'm more right than they are, you know, kind of thing. But the thing, that's the thing about languages, right? They evolve, they change. Um, you can tell when a person, you can tell by the words people use. You can tell by the synonyms they use for certain words. And so when it comes to the writing style, this is very helpful because most of the New Testament documents we have were not dated by the scribe. They weren't dated. So how are we supposed to tell which one's older and which one's newer? And why would that even matter? Why does that matter? Well, okay, you would assume the older would be more accurate. Why is that? Because it hasn't been copied as many times. Right? So it's pretty important to be able to tell how old a document is. So when we consider the New Testament manuscripts, it stands to reason the question we would ask is how old is it? This can be answered by looking at factors like the size of the letters. Oh, here's something else. My mom, I can't remember my mother ever writing in block letters. All, everything my mom wrote is in cursive. 
Do any of you have any kids that write in cursive? You do? But probably because where they went to school had a special program for it, right? Um, but people don't write in cursive anymore. I mean, like 90-something percent of people don't even know how. Huh? Are they? They're going back to it? Well, all right. Well, that's particularly helpful to our discussion today because that means that they would be able to tell that a person who only wrote in block letters lived between a certain period of time, correct? Because people before that wrote in cursive, people after wrote in cursive, but during this narrow period of 20 or 30 years, there are people, there are younger people who don't know how to write in cursive. Yeah, they don't know how to read it. That's, that's, and, you know, if you've never learned it, that we, that the letters don't look the same. They don't look the same. Yeah. So, interesting. So that's, that shows you, they can tell by how things are written, the types of punctuation, marks of punctuation. So writing style becomes an important factor determining age. We have today about 5,000 New Testament, Old New Testament manuscripts in Greek. There are two major types of manuscripts based upon writing style. The two types are what are called the uncils and what are called the cursives. And just like you can tell if somebody wrote in all, in all block letters what generation they're from versus cursive, when it comes to Greek manuscripts, you can tell. That's a big-time indicator of how old a document is. These are the oldest, the uncils. They are... All caps, block letters in Greek. These are the oldest and the most significant of the two because they are the oldest. Okay? The words were written in capital letters without any intervening spaces between them. So it's just one running block of letters across the page. Yeah, difficult to read. Even when you know Greek. I remember... When I was in Greek class trying to read those, it was, it's very challenging. Yeah, 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 that's right. And it has no marks of punctuation. No marks of punctuation. So, also, unfinished words were often completed on the next line. Okay, now we do that sometimes. Your computer does it automatically with a dash, right? But, but the thing about this, nowadays, they used to at least have the dash. Now they kind of just self-align your document. Well, uncils, they wanted them to start at the same place and end at the same place on the page. So if it's a long word, it just goes right into the next, and there's no breaks. I mean, it's pretty easy to tell how old a document is because soon they decided that, that ain't the best way to write. And they changed it. Okay, we currently have 300 or so of unseals that still remain, all dating between the third of the the third and the ninth century A.D. So that means from the 200s, and most of them in the 300s. The 200s is even questionable. It's possible some of the older ones fall at the end of the 200s, but but basically they're from the 400s to the 800s. Okay, so. The second group is called the cursives. There are 4,700 of those still remaining. 
They are written in a small, running hand style, therefore called cursives. They have divisions between the words, spaces between the words. They have marks of punctuation. And these date much later from the 9th century, so from the 800s, to about the 15th century, so to the 1600s. So we have these, these two divisions. So and when they find an old manuscript through archaeology, they can kind of tell just by looking at it, approximate age, or at least what era it was written in. Of all the manuscripts we have in our possession, very few could be called what we call a complete New Testament. In fact, most do not contain parts of every New Testament book. This is because of the simple fact that in a hand-produced copy of the whole <clears throat> was too impractical for everyday personal use. Why would that be? Well, we could illustrate it well. If one of you will go home and hand copy the New Testament for us, bring it back next week, we can have a great example of this. Okay? No one is volunteering. I see. That would, not a week, I don't think. No way. I mean, how much, I mean, you read how small the letters are in, in our Bible. How thick do you think the entire New Testament would be if you hand wrote it? I mean, it'd be sig significant, right? Especially in ancient times where paper or vellum was like 10 times as thick as what the paper we use now is. Especially Bible paper. Bible paper is like almost see-through, right? I mean, it's very, very thin. But their paper was thick. So, and of course, when you handwrite something, you're never going to get it into the small, small. It would take forever if you wrote that small, wouldn't it? It would take 10 times as long. So you would have a, just a gigantic, especially if you had the whole Bible, what would you have? I mean, just this monstrosity. So it wasn't useful in practical use. So oftentimes, they would group things together. Evidence of our manuscripts shows that there were four categories generally followed when making copies of the New Testament. So you might have a copy of the Gospels, the four Gospels. Someone else may have a copy of Acts and the general epistles. Someone else may have a copy of the Pauline epistles, the writings of Paul, and someone else may have a copy of the book of Revelation. All of those were considered scriptures. So when they're going and trying to translate, they're not just saying, I'm just going to pick this one and translate from this one. You really couldn't find any that would give you the whole New Testament if you just picked one to translate from. See what I mean? So they used the, the broad spectrum of what we have remaining. Many times two, three, and four were bound together in one volume. That's the Acts and General Epistles, the Pauline Epistles, and the Book of Revelation, thus making the Gospels volume one and the rest of the New Testament volume two. All right. The great unseals. Now, this is important because there are four manuscripts, five really, that date back way farther than everything else. And we've mentioned this briefly in the past. There are five manuscripts that are considered the oldest and therefore look to for their reliability. And that is why, as I have illustrated so many times, those of you who are reading from the King James or New King James, and those of you who are reading from any other English version, there is pretty remarkable differences there. Now, there is not any 
contradiction. There's not any sense in which those differences affect the message or of salvation or of Christ or of God's plan of redemption or what we need to do or believe in our life to serve Him. Those are not the, the issues. But there are distinct differences. Does anybody remember? How, we've illustrated that in the past. Brother Dean, I don't see him today, but I, I won't pick on him like we did last time. Does anybody remember some of those things? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The King James will have more. The King James and New King James. And the reason for that is the King James and New King James were translated mostly from those 4,700 cursives. Okay? From those 4,700 cursives. And there are more of those. Many, many, many more of those. The newer translations, starting with the American Standard Bible in 1901, and then you have the Revised Version and the New American Standard and the New International Version and the English Standard Version and all New American Standard, all of those from that time forward, archaeology had discovered these older unsealed manuscripts. And so they went back to those, and lo and behold, there were some things in these old five that weren't found, that they couldn't find, that were in almost all of the cursives. The great example, of course, is somebody who has an NIV will do it again. Who's got an NIV? All right, you can admit it. It's perfectly fine. <laughs> Who's got a King James or New King James? Okay, Doris, read us Acts 8.37. She's got a New King James. Really? That would irritate me. Uh -uh. Acts 8 37. Acts 8 37? Uh huh. Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. All right, we asked that very question before we baptize everybody. Yeah. You know, do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That's where we get that, by the way. Did you know that? Yeah, read it. Go ahead. Sister Devereaux, read it from NIV. Acts 8, 37. Just start at verse 36. That'll help you. Okay, go back and read verse 37. Somehow you missed it. It's not there. Your Bible skips straight from verse 36 to verse 38. Correct? Isn't that interesting? That's because in the old unseals, that verse is not there. It happens a lot. Okay, uh, now... There's others that aren't there. I'll give you one that actually is there, okay? So not, there's no tricking in this. Um, turn over to John 8. Actually, John 7 in the last verse of the chapter, and then reading into John 8. This is a very, very familiar Bible story, right? John 8, anybody know what that is? It's the woman caught in adultery, right? Where Jesus writes on the ground and then says, <clears throat> does anyone condemn you? You know, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. 
What's the last verse of chapter 7? Okay. And then chapter 8. Is there like any kind of notation? The oldest reliable manuscripts do not have John 7.53 to chapter 8 verse 11. In fact, there's less evidence, if I understand it correctly, for that passage than there is for the Acts 8.37 passage. I think if, I mean, that's, honestly, this is one of the reasons why I use the New King James. And I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a translation monster about this. I mean, I know there are some in the church who are, got to use this Bible, you know, I'm, I'm not that way. But I choose to use the New King James because I, I just don't, I really don't like the marketing and the philosophy of some of the Bibles because the people who translated that don't believe that should be in there. Yet it is in there. Why? Because it's really hard to sell Bibles without the story of the woman and Jesus who was caught in the act of adultery. Right? I mean, that's kind of a well-known Bible story. And, and so what I don't like is that they pick and choose what to put in and what not to put in. And they, none of them think that one should be there. They just don't. But they put it there and they put those notations because... It would irritate people to be told about that story in the, in the sermon and turn over there and it's not in their Bible, right? And you can get away with it on Acts 8.37 because, well, frankly, we in the churches of Christ are like the only ones who use that one, you know? I mean, it's, it's not as big a deal in the religious world to pull that one verse out. Another example is, and we don't have time to look at all these, but Acts 8, um, Romans chapter 8, verses 1, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. NIV stops right there. But the King James and New King James say, for those who walketh not according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. ESV stops, ESV stops there too. Yeah, almost all of them that are using the old unseals do, because those aren't there. And these are just three of many, many, many examples. Yes? Okay, the most common places that they're kept, well, the, I'm getting ready to tell you the five great old ones, okay? And, and that'll be included there. Most of them are in museums. The British Museum has probably the greatest collection in the world. Um, but most of them are in museums. Okay, so the five great old unseals. The Vatican Manuscript, Codex Vaticanus. Now, the thing about the, the Vatican Manuscript, it's dated from the 3rd or 4th century, probably the 4th. It is considered the oldest. It is the absolute best old manuscript of the Bible on planet Earth that's been discovered. Now, could there be one buried under the ground somewhere? Absolutely. But that has been discovered, the oldest one is held under lock and key by the Catholic Church in the Vatican itself. The oldest Bible, uh, New Testament in the world. It is missing a few sections. It's missing Genesis 1 for, through 46, all those chapters. It's missing the book of Psalms. And it's missing Hebrews 9.14 through the end of the Bible. So, but in terms of old manuscripts, that's very complete. That's very complete. Uh, the 4th century, the 300s. 300s. So, just a couple hundred years removed from the apostles. <clears throat> the second best in all the world 
is called the Codex Sinaiticus. This one I told you um, is the one that the fellow went to Mount Sinai in the 1800s to, uh, on, a, on a, a pilgrimage. He was a, a monk and he was very cold at night and he asked for some wood to burn in his fireplace so he could stay warm. They said, we don't have any wood. This is the desert. But we got a whole bunch of paper. We've just been burning that. And they brought him a whole bunch of old papers to burn to keep warm. And it ended up being the second oldest Bible ever found. And part of it is missing. In fact, almost all of the Old Testament is missing. Because it probably got burned to stay warm. They kept warm. Yep. Um, it is from the 4th century also, from the 300s. It is uh, it's a close second because this is what's really great about it. The entire New Testament is complete. Matthew through Revelation. The entire New Testament is complete. And it is housed right now at the British Museum. And Lenore and I were in England a couple years ago and that was the most exciting thing for me to go to the British Museum and they didn't have any of it on display. It's, they had a bunch of mummies. I'm like, I don't want to see mummies. I want to see the old manuscripts. But they didn't have any of the best ones on display. But it's housed in the British Museum. The third best is also housed in the British Museum. And it's called the Codex Alexandrian. It dates from the 5th century. So about the 400s. Um, it... It has missing sections, 10 leaves of the Old Testament, sections of Matthew, John, and 2 Corinthians are gone, but, and so that's more complete even than the Vaticanus, however, it's not considered as good because the quality is good, but not that of the Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, because the, just the way it was written and the quality with which it was translated is not quite up to the same par. The fourth is called the Codex Ephraim. It dates also from the, from the 5th century, 400s. Much of the Old Testament, parts of the 2 Thessalonians and 2 John are gone from it. And it is not of the quality of the others. It's in the National Library of Paris. But it's not of the same quality because it's been copied over. All right, that used to happen in ancient times. Paper was very valuable, very scarce. I told you books were some of the most valuable things in the world. Only rich people had books. So if they needed to write something and they couldn't find access to paper, they would kind of try to whitewash something that used to be there and copy over the top of that. Paintings. They did that with paintings too. And so that Codex Ephraim, that's the real problem with it. I mean, it's muddled up pretty bad because it had something else written over the top. And then the final, the fifth, is Codex Bizet. They think it's also from the 5th century. And it's missing all but the Gospels, Acts, and a few other verses. So all it really is is the Gospels and Acts and a few other verses. And its quality is extremely questionable. Because there's a bunch of additions and subtractions. It's held at the University of Cambridge in England. But what I mean by additions and subtractions is whoever copied that one just decided to add some stuff to the Bible. And we know this because there's stuff in there that's not found anywhere else. I mean, not in the 4,700 cursives, not in the other unseals. I mean, it's nowhere else. It's just like he decided, well, God should have put this in there. Told more stuff. So that one is looked at 
Very few of your Bibles even used it in translation because it's so questionable. Huh? Codex Bazet. It's the one at the University of Cambridge from the 5th century. So, <clears throat> those are the great unseals. Those four, five, well, really the four because the fifth is extremely questionable. Those are really the reason why we have such varying English translations because they just don't have some of the same things that the, uns that the later cursives do. Now, there's an argument to be made for both philosophies of translation. Now, the King James and New King James were translated from what's called the Textus Receptus. That is that large body of cursives that we have that admittedly are much later in date. They're farther removed from the source. Most of them come from the 600s, 700s, 800s. So they have been copied more times. However, there is a lot of them. And for the most part, they agree. So the philosophy there is a quantity argument. In other words, you know, you have five, four or five really old ones. But if you have 4,700 that in theory were copied from those 45, then how could the 4,700 agree and those not have these things in there? Unless these 4,700 were copied from a whole bunch of other old ones that we no longer have, and they pretty much agreed on these things. You see the logic there? It's a quantity argument. The argument for the newer translations from the unseals is a quality argument. In other words, everybody knows if you get closer to the source, in theory, it should be more accurate. However, we know there were many more, and the Codex Bazet proves to us that just because it's old doesn't mean it's accurate. Because, I mean, we see all of those additions. So translators, when you translate the Bible, particularly the New Testament, they have to make a, a decision. Am I going to translate from a quantitative or viewpoint or am I going to translate from a qualitative viewpoint? And that's why we have differences in the English translations. Questions? Because they have more archaeologists. Oh, yeah. The British Museum, they have funded lots and lots and lots of archaeology, particularly in the places where you would find that stuff. Yeah, they have, they have led the world in archaeology for a long, long, long time. I mean, until Indiana Jones, we didn't have that much. But we did get the Ark of the Covenant. It's in Area 51. John. There's a difference between copying and translating. Oh, yeah. All of the ones that you're talking about are not copies. They are translations. Or are they copies? They're copies. Because in Greek, the apostles wrote it in Greek. And then they copied it in Greek. That somewhere along the line, all of these have to be translated. Correct. And that's even adding to the confusion. If it, you it, does. it does. It does. People translate different words differently. Right. And a whole lot of translation is depending upon context and the, and the opinion of the translator. 
For instance, in, um, in 1 Timothy, where it talks about the qualifications of elders and of deacons, in the qualification, you notice there's not any um, qualifications for an elder's wife in the qualifications. But when it comes to deacons, it says, and their wives, and your Bible will say, and their wives, and it gives, well, that's interesting because there's nothing for an elder's wife. I guess she doesn't have to be all that great. And um, <laughs> although ours are here, ours are wonderful. <laughs> Things you only say when you've already resigned, right? <laughs> you girls know I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. So, but then it says, and their wives. And that may be an accurate translation. However, the Greek word there is not wives, it's woman and the women. So the translators are struggling here because this has pretty big implication, especially in our current world of women's role being such a question thing in, in religious world because the word is literally woman. But, but it's also the word they would use for wife depending on the context. So the translators had to make a judgment call on that. You see what I mean? Because if they were to just... Oh, by the way, if you want the closest thing in English to the Greek, read the 1901 American Standard Bible. It, it is hands down, but it, I don't like it, but it is hands down, would you disagree? The most accurate... It, it, but it's the most accurate. They translated it, and, and what they did is sent, different languages have different sentence structures, right? Anybody who speaks Spanish knows this. Their sentences are often backwards of how we you know, form sentences in the English language. And so what happens when you translate it, you've got to reverse it. Well, Greek is the same way. I mean, their sentence structure is totally different. Well, the American standard was so concerned in 1901 with being accurate that they just tried to directly translate it. And it is the choppiest thing. I mean, even people who are professionals at reading, I can't get up there and read the American Standard without making 20 mistakes in 20 verses. I mean, it is hard. It makes the King James seem easy. It's hard. Because they're trying to... But if you're doing your own personal study, it's very helpful. Because it, it, it gives you more of a sense that you're reading the Greek. In English. See what I mean? So yes, you're absolutely right. <clears throat> Translations are tough, and sometimes they make mistakes. They add words. I mean, they do. Thank goodness, in our English Bibles, most of them, when they add words, they italicize those words. Not all the time. But an example would be in, in John chapter 8. Jesus says this. He says, um, lest you believe that I am, and your Bibles will say either, I am he or I am who I claim to be, he will die in his sins. Lest a man believe that I am he, he will die in his sins. But the word he in your Bible is italicized. The words who I claim to be in the NIV is italicized. Why? Because Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, lest you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That's what he said. What does I am mean? Go ahead. Um, my wife just pointed out uh, her Bible that her grandma had, a New Testament, King James Version. It says here, the New Testament, the 
four Gospels, Acts of the Apostles, 21 Epistles, Revelation of St. John, authorized by, authorized by King James, with the addition in many instances within brackets of more correct renderings of the American Standard Version, 1901. <clears throat> and introduction to each book and blah, blah, blah. But it was interesting, like you just mentioned. Well, this gives you great thoughts for Christmas time. So... <laughs> And I want everybody to know, I love our elders' wives. They are wonderful Christian examples to all the young ladies. God bless. <laughs>